there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. This episode features graphic descriptions of the effects of starvation that some people may find disturbing, as well as mentions of suicide. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. 37-year-old Dora Williamson lay weak in bed. After fasting for over 60 days in the spring of 1911, she was a shriveled husk of the woman she had been just two months before. Her skin was sallow and sagging, hanging like sheets off her emaciated body. Every raspy breath sent a sharp sensation through her ribs, but her breathing was the least of the pain. Soon, 43-year-old Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard entered Dora's bare attic bedroom. She had arrived to administer Dora's scheduled treatment, a massage. But this massage wasn't a typical series of therapeutic touches meant to soothe and heal the body. This massage was excruciating. It was torture. Linda disrobed Dora, ignoring the weakened woman's whispered pleas. Once her skeletal body was nude, Linda dealt a series of blows to her flesh, violently hitting Dora's stomach, back, and head again and again. Dora moaned in pain, tears streaming down her shrunken cheeks. As she cried, she thought of her sister, poor Claire, She had lost everything. Starved of all of her strength and stripped of her free will, Dora was certain that she would die there, trapped and alone, stranded in northern Washington, left to waste away under the gaze of this unusually cruel doctor. There was no one who could save her. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we examined the life of Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard, a turn-of-the-20th-century medical practitioner who preached starvation as a method of curing disease. 
We followed Linda from her traumatic childhood exposure to harmful medical treatments to her evolution into a well-respected alternative medicine guru and, ultimately, a con artist. This week, we'll see how Linda exploited and starved wealthy British heiresses Dora and Claire Williamson at her horrific sanitarium in Washington state. And finally, we'll cover how her deadly malpractice was exposed for what it truly was, murder. Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard had always dreamed of opening her own sanitarium. She hoped the facility would rival that of the day's better-known alternative medical centers, such as John Kellogg's famous Clean Living Sanitarium in Michigan, which treated important clientele like Mary Todd Lincoln. But Linda's facility would be unique. She planned to build 30 cabins surrounding a great white house that rose from the woods. This place, in touch with nature, would prove the uselessness of traditional hospitals. There, alternative medicine and the fasting cure would reign. But to realize her dream, she needed plenty of funds, which meant she needed wealthy patients. And in 1910, she found the perfect marks in the Williamson sisters. The British heiresses had moved to Seattle to start their fasting regimen under Linda's care, thrilled that the well-respected doctor had agreed to take on their cases. But what they didn't realize was that while she drained the sisters of their strength over the course of a 40-day fasting treatment, she was also planning to drain their finances. And in March of 1911, Linda made her move. With the sisters now delirious and weak, Linda decided to transfer 33-year-old Claire and 37-year-old Dora to her unfinished sanitarium in remote Olala, Washington. There, she would isolate them from the outside world and bleed them dry. That day, Claire and Dora's concerned Seattle neighbors watched on as the emaciated sisters were escorted by paramedics into two separate ambulances. As soon as they were loaded into the vehicles, Linda's attorney, John Arthur, swooped in. In the ambulance, Arthur urged Claire to write a letter that would act as her will, a simple precaution should anything happen to her on the journey over. Though Claire was not in the right state of mind to make legal decisions, she agreed. In her letter, she bequeathed the sisters' books and jewels to their beloved former governess in the event of their deaths. Then, after some prompting from Linda's lawyer, Claire also promised approximately $15,000 per year to the Hazard Institute of Natural Therapeutics as a post-mortem annual donation. That's approximately $400,000 a year today. Then, under Claire's weakened, sloppy penmanship, the attorney signed off on the letter, making it legally binding. The two sisters were placed on a steamboat that would take them across the Puget Sound to Olala. Ship captain Nels Christensen saw both the women during the journey. He recalled, The girls didn't weigh more than 50 or 60 pounds at the most. They were so weak and so sick, neither one of them could stand up. 
Despite Captain Christensen's obvious concern about the Williamson sisters, he did nothing to intervene, nor did he question why the women were so emaciated. This phenomenon, in which witnesses stand by while others are victimized, is known as the bystander effect. Before I continue with any psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to social psychologist Dr. Rachel Manning, there's a negative correlation between the number of witnesses at a crime scene and the likelihood that any of those bystanders will speak up. Essentially, in the presence of many people, individuals are more likely to assume that others will intervene, shifting the responsibility to those around them, rather than taking action themselves. In the case of Claire and Dora Williamson, Captain Christensen undoubtedly believed that if something were horribly wrong with the sisters, another person, the lawyer or the paramedics, or their own doctor, would have said something. And so, with no protest or resistance from any of the many bystanders on the boat, Dr. Hazard and the skeletal Williamson sisters made the two-hour voyage to Olala. At the time, Olala was something of a remote village. The population was less than 400. Coast Salish peoples had inhabited the land, relatively undisturbed by white settlers, until 1881, just 30 years before. And by 1911, the town was known for nothing more than shellfish, salmon, and wild strawberry bushes. By the time the sisters were carried onto the property of the sanitarium, their hopes were crushed. Instead of the luxurious countryside retreat that Linda had promised, they discovered an unfinished compound without electricity surrounded by an overgrown, dreary forest. The only finished portion of the facility was Linda's home, where she lived with her second husband, Sam. There, Claire and Dora were to stay in the attic. Claire had her own small, bare room, while Dora would sleep outdoors on a landing separated from Claire's room by a wooden screen. Linda claimed that sleeping outside would help Dora take advantage of the fresh Washington air. But the lows in March in Olala were near freezing, and Dora had lost nearly all of her body fat. That night, she shivered in the frigid air, her blanket hardly insulating her already skeletal frame. But despite all this, the Williamson sisters tried to hold on to hope. They'd been looking forward to their stay at the sanitarium ever since they'd learned about Dr. Linda's treatments. And they had believed Linda time and time again as she told them that their condition was improving. The treatments were working. But the only thing that was going to plan was Linda Hazard's scheme to slowly steal more and more from the naive heiresses. The very next morning, as soon as the sisters woke up, Sam Hazard offered to help them write letters to their loved ones. At the time, Dora was feeling too delirious to speak properly. Claire, however, agreed, appreciating the seemingly kind gesture. Sam told her that he would type the letter as Claire dictated to him what she wanted to be written. Claire barely managed to lift her head to speak, only muttering vague sentiments about how happy she was to have finally arrived in Olala. 
Then her strength was gone and she needed to rest once more. Sam, meanwhile, kept typing and typing. Then he had her sign the letter. Unbeknownst to Claire, instead of sending well wishes to her family, she had just signed away a portion of her wealth. It was only the first of many financial documents that Sam and Linda forged, ultimately granting the Hazards access to the sisters' many assets. But their manipulation hardly stopped there. As soon as Linda had the sisters separated from the outside world in Olala, she went to work to then isolate them from each other. With Claire and Dora in separate rooms and unable to walk on their own, they had no way to communicate, and Linda insisted that any contact would only be a distraction from their recovery. Instead, the sisters relied on Linda and her nursing staff to pass along messages, but neither knew if the other ever received it. When Dora begged Linda to see her younger sister, Linda coldly claimed that Claire was far too weak for visitors. Similarly, when Claire asked after Dora, Linda claimed that her mental state had deteriorated, telling Claire that Dora was altogether out of her head. Though the sisters were only a room apart, these lies made them feel as if they were miles away and too helpless to come to the other's aid. But one day, Dora took matters into her own hands. Desperate to see her sister, Dora pushed herself onto the floor of the attic and crawled over to her bedroom. From her spot on the ground, Dora peered up at Claire's unmoving figure on the bed. She called to her, Claire, can you hear me? But as Claire stirred and turned over toward her sister, Dora was stunned. Her younger sister was gaunt, almost beyond recognition, the skin on her face clinging tight to her skull. Claire was also shocked. Dora's starved body was just as sickening. Like seeing twisted reflections of their own emaciation, the sisters were horrified at the sight of one another. Claire demanded Dora leave, rasping, Dora, you mustn't come. Dejected and disheartened, Dora crawled away. She scraped the crepe-thin skin on her knees as she dragged herself across the floor, leaving a trail of blood from her sister's bed to her own. At this point in their stay at the sanitarium, it's unclear if the sisters had become aware of how dire their situation was, or of the fact that Dr. Linda's intentions were far from their best interest. But seeing Dora's skeletal face had clearly stirred something in Claire. She composed a letter far away from the prying eyes of the Hazards to their former governess, Margaret Conway. Gathering what little strength she had, Claire wrote just three lines. They read, Come SS Marma, May 8th, first class, Claire. When Margaret received Claire's message on April 30th, 1911, she was unnerved. Her request was unusual and brief. Stranger still, Claire's usual practiced and precise penmanship was messy and erratic. 
Worried and confused, Margaret boarded the SS Marma days later from her home in Melbourne, Australia, to Olala, Washington. But the journey across the world would take her over a month, and by then, it would be far too late. Coming up, Claire and Dora's time at Linda's sanitarium only grows shorter as Margaret Conway races to their aid. Now, back to the story. In March of 1911, 43-year-old Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard had initiated the most important step in her long-awaited plan. She had moved British heiresses 33-year-old Claire and 37-year-old Dora from Seattle, Washington to her unfinished sanitarium in remote Olala, isolating them from the outside world. Now free from prying eyes, Linda was free to continue to starve the sisters without suspicion. For days, she drained them of both their health and riches through a combination of forced fasting regimens and forged financial documents. As the sisters languished in their hunger-induced delirium, their conditions only grew more dire. Days into their stay at Olala, the sisters began to desperately crave any sustenance. Dora recalled Claire even begging Dr. Hazard for chicken, though she had been a vegetarian for years. But the doctor quickly shot down all requests for anything outside their strict diet regimen of thin vegetable broths. Instead, she insisted that the treatment was working, restoring their health. She would tell them, I can see it in your eyes. During one of the few times the separated sisters were permitted to dine together, the famished Claire grew almost primal, ravenously consuming her broth. The once dainty and well-mannered sister was so ashamed, she begged Dora to leave her. As Dora left the dining room, she remembered Claire desperately licking her cup and sucking spilled spots of broth off her dress. And in May of 1911, after two weeks at the sanitarium and 60 days of fasting, Claire's health began to rapidly decline. She was deteriorating both physically and mentally, bedbound and barely able to speak. Separated from one another and with no means to communicate, Dora begged Dr. Hazard for updates on Claire but her reports were always vague and told Dora almost nothing about her sister's condition. Until one day, she asked if Dora wanted to speak with Claire. She eagerly agreed. When Linda carried Dora to Claire's bedside, she was horrified by what she saw. Bed sores spread across her sister's body, and her bones poked through her thin, almost translucent skin. Meanwhile, Linda loomed over the pair, taking in Dora's horrified expression. Claire mustered her strength and managed to whisper to her, I want to see Dora alone. Eventually, Linda left the girls to linger in the hall outside. Afterward, Claire looked long and hard at Dora, as if she desperately wanted to tell her something. Dora said later, I know she was going to tell me something. I could see it so perfectly well, 
but she decided not to tell me. She felt I was not in a fit condition. She was too delirious to even think to ask Claire about what was on her mind, and too delirious to fathom the reality that her younger sister was on death's doorstep. And so she softly kissed Claire on her forehead as Claire closed her eyes, seemingly asleep. Then, after a moment, Dora stumbled from the side of the bed back into the arms of Dr. Hazard. As she carried Dora down the stairs, Linda couldn't help but be pleased. Claire had deteriorated faster than she'd even hoped, and after she was gone, she knew Dora wouldn't be far after her. On May 19, 1911, Dora was waiting in the sitting room when she saw Linda come down the stairs with Claire in her arms. This time, Claire attempted to speak to Dora. She whispered, It's me, Dory. But over the dying woman's quiet words came the booming voice of Linda. Dory, is that a pet name? What a lovely name. How do you spell it? Claire continued to desperately whisper to her sister, but Linda rambled, drowning out Claire's weak voice. As a nurse urged Claire to speak louder, Dora grew upset. She told her, I don't wish her to be forced. I would rather lose the message than press her to say it. But it hardly mattered. Claire was now far too weak to deliver whatever she desperately wished to convey, her breath rasping. Linda asked Claire, would you like a treatment? Dora was horrified, but before she could respond, Linda placed Claire on a bed and hammered her palm against her stomach. Claire let out an infantile cry. Dora watched in agony as her younger sister, her closest companion in life, experienced her painful last moments. Claire's eyes rolled into the back of her head, and soon she went unconscious. Sobbing, Dora kissed her sister on the forehead as she slipped away. 33-year-old Claire, the only family she had left in the world, was gone. In the days following Claire's death, Dora was delirious with starvation and her own private mourning, and Dr. Hazard did little to relieve her patient. Instead, she insisted that Dora continue her treatment, despite her despondency. She forced Dora into taking regular enemas and subjected her again and again to the same violent massages that took her sister's last moments. With one sister taken care of and a series of forged financial documents granting her access to their wealth, the cruel doctor was determined to push Dora even closer toward death. Two nights after Claire's passing, Linda sat with Dora on the porch. She noticed her patient peering into the forest, which hid a deep ravine. Linda told Dora, I had a patient who tried to throw herself over the gulch to commit suicide. Tell me, dear, you're not thinking the same, are you? 
Then she pointed toward the ravine, hoping the woman would take notice of the direction. Dora snapped back. It does not seem to me the right thing under the circumstance, me lying here helpless and my sister just gone, to mention the subject of suicide. This unexpected act of resistance infuriated Linda. She called Dora insane and an imbecile. Then she softened her voice. She lied to Dora, telling her it was Claire's wish that she remain at Olala for life, and Linda promised they would fulfill Claire's desire to never let Dora leave. Dora protested, saying, Claire would not wish me to remain here against my will. But Linda ignored her entirely and simply picked up her frail body, telling her, It is time for a treatment, dear. Dora, weak and unable to argue, let herself be carried away by the doctor for yet another painful enema and violent massage. Days later, on May 26, 1911, as a grieving Dora wasted away in bed, Sam Hazard ventured a trip to the sister's bank. Without informing the cashier of Claire's death, Sam presented them with a signed money order from Claire to be paid to Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard. Then he withdrew $1,000, about $27,000 today. Nothing, not even death, would stop the Hazards from stealing from their patients. But unknown to Sam and Linda, Margaret Conway, Claire and Dora's former governess, had finally arrived in Olala. It had taken Margaret over a month after receiving Claire's worrisome letter for her to complete the long voyage from Melbourne, Australia, to Washington. And by the time her ship docked on June 1st, 1911, it was too late for Claire. She had passed away just two weeks before. When Margaret arrived at the sanitarium and heard the news from Sam Hazard, she nearly fainted. He had told the governess plainly, Miss Claire has died and Miss Dora is helplessly insane. When she spoke to Dr. Linda, the physician seemed almost entirely unaffected by her patient's death or Margaret's own arrival. In fact, she found the doctor rather clinical. Linda immediately blamed Claire's passing on her supposed poor health. And then, to prove her claim, she described to Margaret the autopsy that she'd conducted on Claire's body in great detail. She told Margaret that Claire's liver was so hard she couldn't get a knife to penetrate it. And supposedly, the blood had dried so severely in one of her heart valves that it turned to powder in Linda's fingers. Then, when Linda showed Margaret Claire's embalmed body, she nearly retched. The governess hardly recognized the gaunt corpse of her former charge. She was determined not to let Dora meet the same fate. Linda led Margaret outside to the cabin where Dora was now staying. Margaret spotted someone seated outside. At first, she believed the small figure was a young child, 
But as she got closer, she realized it was Dora, skin drawn tightly over her skull, her body a bluish tint. As Linda left the two women, Dora immediately begged Margaret to take her from the sanitarium. Margaret embraced Dora and promised she would do everything she could to get her out. She moved into the cabin immediately. Oddly, Linda didn't protest. She wasn't worried about the governess. Linda already had much of the girl's wealth secured through many forged financial documents, but mostly she felt safe in the knowledge that Dora, delirious and confused from her starvation, was in no state to reveal much or to fight against Linda's regimen. In fact, as Margaret tried to sneak extra calories into Dora's broths in the form of heavy cream, Dora started to resist. She claimed she had been advised by the nurses at Olala, as well as Linda, not to let Margaret help her. Dora insisted she was actually getting better. Dr. Hazard told her so. Shocked at her sudden transformation, Margaret speculated that Dora had been brainwashed by Linda. According to the book Brainwashing, The Science of Thought Control by author Kathleen Taylor, the promise of healing or a cure is a common method of gaining psychological dominance over a victim. The brainwasher, usually an authority figure, uses these claims to liberate an individual from a supposed false doctrine, only to chain them to another belief that the brainwasher claims will actually heal their victim. In the case of Dr. Hazard and her victims, traditional medicine was the supposed false doctrine and starvation the proposed cure. Kathleen Taylor writes, Brainwashing, which by inflicting massive personality change, removes its victims' freedom to act, but leaves them still believing they are acting freely. This is done through a process Taylor calls mental weathering. Taylor goes on to explain that brainwashing can literally carve out new pathways in the human brain, changing the way a person thinks. These pathways can be overturned, but reprogramming the mind is not a short process. Margaret was patient with Dora, staying by her side, slowly nursing her body and mind back to a semblance of normalcy. And weeks later, Dora finally emerged from the fog of her starvation. She was able to fully realize the danger she was in. Under Margaret's care and away from Linda's gaze, Dora was once again eating solid foods and had slowly gained back her health. Finally, she had the strength she needed to leave. In late July of 1911, Margaret announced to 43-year-old Linda that she and Dora, now 37, would collect Claire's belongings and leave the sanitarium. Linda was livid. Her face turned bright red as she told the women that Dora was by no means allowed to travel in the state she was in. Then Linda dropped a bombshell. She was Dora's legal guardian and therefore could refuse to let her leave. Dora was shocked. She had never granted Linda legal guardianship, but after some investigation, 
Margaret discovered that when Dora's mental state was at its worst, Linda had her judged incompetent by a lawyer. This had left Linda, as her doctor, in charge of the sisters' personal and financial matters. Realizing they couldn't simply walk out of Olala without trouble, Margaret covertly sent a telegraph to Dora's uncle in Portland, John Herbert, urging him to come right away. When John arrived on July 19, 1911, he calmly informed Linda that they would, in fact, be taking Dora. After consulting a lawyer, Linda finally agreed to release Dora, but only if she paid her remaining balance for treatment in full. Gritting his teeth, John handed Linda over $800 in traveler's checks, a little over $20,000 today. But now that her own life was saved, she had to make sure no one else suffered from the starvation cure. Coming up, we'll learn the extent of Linda's lies as they unravel in court. Now back to the story. After months in the life-threatening care of 43-year-old Dr. Linda Hazard, on July 22, 1911, 37-year-old Dora Williamson finally escaped Linda's clutches. But not before discovering that Linda had been granted complete guardianship over Dora through forged documents. After fleeing Olala, Dora began her arduous recovery from the brink of starvation. But for as far as she had come, she had a whole new battle yet to face, this time a legal one. Soon, she recruited the help of British Vice Counsel Lucian Agassiz and Frank Kelly, a seasoned Tacoma attorney, to help build her case against Linda. First, a hearing over Dora's guardianship was in order. In July 1911, Agassiz and Kelly took Linda to court. Just a few days later, they won the trial handily. Linda was ordered to return $973, around $26,000 today, to Dora, although ultimately she was allowed to keep more than half for the medical services she provided. It was a pathetic win overall, but it was just one battle in the bigger war they were waging. The legal team hoped this small success would open the door for criminal charges against Linda for Claire's death. And it did. The judge agreed to launch an investigation. Agassiz and Kelly began building their case against Linda for manslaughter. Their first order of business was to retrieve the jewelry Linda had taken from Claire after her death. Dora estimated that in all, Claire was missing $6,000, over $160,000 today, worth of precious jewels, many of them family heirlooms, passed down to the sisters by their mother. But as usual, Linda gave the legal team the runaround. She claimed she had returned some of the jewelry to Dora and sent a portion to her former attorney, John Arthur, for safekeeping. Though they were able to locate $500 worth of jewels, the majority was assumed to be stolen by Linda. 
Dora's legal team also discovered that Sam and Linda had been transferring money to themselves via Claire and Dora's bank accounts after gaining access through forged documents. In all, the pair withdrew around $1,700 from the sisters' bank accounts, approximately $46,000 today. As the evidence that Linda was starving the sisters to gain control over their finances grew, Agassiz and Kelly began to believe they had a strong case against the Hazards. And soon, the publicity surrounding Linda Hazard had more people convinced the alternative medicine practitioner was hiding a higher death count than she admitted to. More stories emerged of missing or dead associated with Linda's practice, and all of them ended in a similar story. Linda had carried out an autopsy on the patient only to conveniently find that they had died from alleged pre-existing conditions. Finally, on January 15, 1912, after a months-long investigation, 44-year-old Linda Burfield Hazard stood trial for the manslaughter of Claire Williamson. The proceedings drew massive crowds. Outbursts frequently came from the gallery, forcing the judge to silence onlookers, telling them, this courtroom is not a place for amusement. Amidst the chaos, however, Linda and Sam Hazard sat in the courtroom, quiet and aloof unwaveringly confident in their ability to win the case. When a reporter asked Linda what she would do if she wasn't victorious in the case, she replied with confidence, there is no such thing as if. One headline even read, Mrs. Hazard dominates all, says she is stronger than ordinary man. This demonstration of detachment paired with a sense of grandiosity is not an uncommon reaction in killers who face trial. According to criminology researchers Bruce A. Arrigo and Ayana Griffin in their work on female murderers, public attention around a crime only serves to bolster the criminal's idea that they're larger than life. Arrigo and Griffin go on to explain that, many times, killers take advantage of this opportunity to receive notoriety they may not have been granted otherwise. And Linda, perhaps sensing that her window for fame as an alternative medicine guru was closing, seized her chance to gain publicity by whatever means necessary. At one point, she leaned over and whispered in Sam's ear and then laughed, when questioned about what had induced the chuckle, Linda told a reporter, Do you know I can't feel serious about this trial as I suppose I ought? I really feel almost as if I were at a play. While Dora sat in the audience, still devastated by the loss of her sister, Linda treated the trial like nothing more than an elaborate performance. Four days after the trial began, on January 19, 1912, 37-year-old Dora Williamson finally took the stand. Her testimony extended over a two-day period in which she testified in great detail the horrible cruelty she experienced at the hands of Dr. Linda. The painful treatments sold as cures that ultimately killed Claire. 
But even among days of damning testimony, Linda remained steadfast in her innocence. And by January 23, 1912, news of the outrageous trial had circulated internationally. Even newspapers as far as Australia were reporting on the case. But on the eighth day of Linda's murder trial, the press would hear some of the most disturbing and salacious details of Dora and Claire's stay at the sanitarium. Former nurse Essie Cameron had only been at Olala for two weeks before she couldn't handle it any longer. She testified about Claire's horrible death and described in detail the terrible state of her body. Claire, she claimed, had developed a painful red ulcer on her lower back and had purple mottled spots across her body from Linda's violent massages. Finally, on February 4th, after weeks of back and forth between the defense and prosecution, the jury reached a verdict in the murder of Claire Williamson. 44-year-old Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard was found guilty of manslaughter. As the statement was read, Linda remained stoic, displaying no emotion in the courtroom. But as soon as she stepped outside, she screamed at reporters, I am the victim. Linda was sentenced to 2 to 20 years at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. Dora was pleased with the verdict, glad to have kept anyone else from experiencing a similar fate. She told a reporter, even after all I suffered, that would be nothing if I could not do something to prevent others from going through what I did. Dora was on the road to recovery, both physically and mentally. Although she'd gained weight and looked fairly healthy for the trial, she experienced medical complications for the rest of her life. Linda's consequences, however, wouldn't be nearly as permanent. Linda was booked at the Washington State Penitentiary on December 29, 1913, but the doctor was mysteriously released from prison after less than two years. On December 19, 1915, she walked out of the penitentiary on parole. For reasons unknown, perhaps because of her close relationship with prominent government officials, she never returned. Not long after, Governor Ernest Lister granted Linda a pardon under the condition that she leave America. So the Hazards packed their bags and moved to New Zealand. Linda once again opened a medical practice, which puzzlingly experienced overwhelming success. Approximately five years later, in 1920, the Hazards moved back to Washington State with enough money to resume their ownership of the Olala Sanitarium. For the rest of her days, Linda experienced nothing but mere brushes with the law. She was arrested in 1925 for yet another death. But incredibly, Linda was ultimately fined only $100, just $1,500 today. Linda continued practicing until 1935, when a fire consumed Olala and her beloved sanitarium. At age 70, 
Linda lost everything she built, as well as most of her followers. And just three years later, the doctor herself fell ill. Ironically, she called on her remaining devotees to carry out the fasting technique on her ailing body. She received enemas, broths, and massages, everything she had administered to her patients. But Linda passed away just a few weeks later, alone and gaunt in her bed, her own final victim. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard, amongst the many sources we used, we found Starvation Heights by Greg Olson extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Bailey Benningfield, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Remember, you can examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of other female felons by following the ParCast series, Female Criminals, on Spotify. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.